welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. And I'm John Story. Together, we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature Bruce Foreman. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Welcome, listeners. Episode 6 of the High Action Podcast. Today, we've got the great Bruce Foreman, and I'm joined here by, again, Perry Smith and Will Brom. How are you doing today, Perry? I'm doing pretty good. You know, it's great to feature Bruce on this new episode. I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it. You know, Bruce is an incredible jazz guitar player. Um, When I first heard him when I was just a teenager, I was just blown away by his command of the instrument and his command of the bebop language. And all these years later, I still feel that way about him. That's so true, right? And Will, you know, I've, I've in recent years, I have some memories of you and I going and hanging at Viva Cantina and checking yeah. him out. Actually, I remember, I think there was a guitar night that he did with Pisano that you and I were there for, and mm-hmm. everyone was there. It was just like, um, it was like it might as well have just been the L.A. Jazz Guitar meeting that night. You know, we should have officially, we should have had a cake like an like a Benedetto arch top or something. I don't know. <laughs> But um, but yeah, Will. I'm you know I just again I know you talk about it in the interview about your first time meeting Bruce. But what's one of your takeaways listening back to this interview today of something that you just take away from from hanging with him? I feel charged and invigorated listening back. Honestly, I was it was I mean I love how his mind works. I love how innovative he is. I love how um, I don't know if I'd say out of the box, but just how open he is and and with it you know, and into new ideas. It's inspiring. Totally. And, you know, he's a monster guitar player and somebody who, when when he really plays the guitar, you know, like for those listeners who haven't gone to see Bruce play live or haven't had that opportunity yet, you know, even if you check out on YouTube some clips of him playing, he's, he's just completely owning what he's playing on his instrument. I love talking to him about how he sets up his guitars and how he likes there being a little resistance and a little bit of fight. Perry, I know you're like that a lot with your instrument. Do you feel like sometimes you got a little bit of that from Bruce early on? I've definitely been very influenced by Bruce. You know, in terms of the way I've set up my instrument, it's kind of changed over the years. Um, I don't even think my action's very high right now. I'd say it's more like medium, medium high. Maybe the strings are a little thicker, but... You know, one of the things about Bruce that I always think is important to talk about when it comes to our group is that he's been there for us a lot over the years. You know, he's taught us individually. He's given us opportunities as a band and he's just been a mentor to us in a great way. And he's kind of given us real talk a lot, you know, like he'll come up to us after a gig and say, you guys need to work on your rhythm guitar playing or you know, you guys need to work on your time and your triplets. And, you know, he's not afraid to just deliver it kind of in the old school way and i respect that yeah yeah completely completely and just how 
um, even when you check out his podcast, which is called Guitar Wink, uh, yeah. with Scott Henderson, you hear how he's he's having the discussions with the guests with Scott, but at the same time you can hear his audience. He's always trying to give people something like you know, be sure you're aware of this and always be doing this, and and he's he just naturally is somebody that is. Um, is in this mentorship role, and he's very giving with with what he feels is important to develop as a young musician. And it was an exciting interview to get to have him be on High Action. He's one of our first guys we interviewed for this series. When we came up with this podcast concept, I mean, it was a given. We had to ask Bruce if he wanted to be on here. And he's just... He's just somebody who reminds us that we've got to keep a good sense of humor while we're uh, being a musician, especially these days. Anyway, he's, he's a great guy. It's a bit of a dense interview. We wanted to give all of our listeners a lot of this content because there's so much gold here. Perry, Will, and I are doing a lot of, of combing through when we do these interviews, as some of you may know. And this one, we just had to throw everything in and the kitchen sink when it came to Bruce because you can't leave out Cowbop. You can't leave out going to New York. You can't leave out all the men and education he's done and uh, we're really excited to present to you today Bruce Foreman so here we go the great Bruce Foreman on high action So great to go back and listen to a lot of your recordings, Bruce, and hear what you've been up to, man. It's just great to connect with you right now and stuff. I figured it'd be kind of cool to talk just a little bit, if it's okay, about when you were younger uh, in San Francisco, and in particular, Eddie Duran, because he's a guitar player I didn't know a whole lot about until we talked recently, and I know we sadly just lost Eddie in November, but I'm just curious when you met him and what it was like to be mentored by him. And I know you were in touch with him for many, many, many years. And he was a he was a very active performer all through through his life. In addition to being a barber and having some other other trades too, right? You know, when I was coming in San Francisco, and again, you know, that was a different time where people were playing everywhere, all the time. It was really easy to be a uh, teenager and get into the scene, you know, just to hang out with everybody and meet everybody. And people were playing a lot, in, um, not just the clubs, but, you know, sessions during the day, too. Mm-hmm. And uh, naturally, Eddie and I became friends and he took an interest in me and would always call me when he was working a gig and tell me to come down and play. He was such a sweet man and just really unbelievably tasteful player played with Cal Jader at the time. He was playing with Vince Guaraldi some. And then we just started doing like little guitar things, you know, like a lot of the promoters would put us together, kind of like the young guy versus the old guy. They try to make it into like a cutting session. Mm-hmm. We, used to, we used to call them the Foreman-Duran fights. <laughs> awesome. And yeah, just over the year, I just love him. He was just always so nice. He had a health scare in the 90s. We thought we were going to lose him, but he pulled through, you know, and lasted another 25 years, I think. Mm-hmm. And just what a beautiful, wonderful player. I do suggest that everybody go back and check his recordings, you know, with Stan Getz and with Cal Jader. Yeah. You know, he's a guy that most people didn't know about because he was in San Francisco and San Francisco is sort of an outpost in the jazz world. Yeah, and and his sound is so beautiful. It's so natural. He's using obviously one of those older instruments that was like a non-cutaway that had I think either a P-51 
Charlie Christian kind of pick up on it. And when I listen to his sound, it kind of is like Cal Collins and those guys of that era. I know Cal was playing with Benny Goodman before him, right? I think Eddie might have been before Cal. Wow. I'm not sure, though. I think Eddie was before Cal. I mean, I think Eddie was right after Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Weibel. So, right. but I'm, I mean, again... You know, I'm sure Wikipedia will make a liar out of me anyways. So. It's it's hard. It's sometimes hard <laughs> to find factual information about who had a guitar seat in a band, you know, because we can trace yeah. that lineage through the recordings um, a little bit. But as you know, like guys would record with guys and then other guys would go on the road with them. And to me, when I think about guitarists of Eddie's generation, the seat in Benny Goodman's band is, is like as heavy as it gets because obviously Charlie Christian had played with him. And there's such a lineage of just the evolution of the electric guitar whoever had that seat was given so much attention. Um, I'm like a huge Cal Collins nut. I've always loved Cal's sound. I mean, who plays a Gretsch through an amp Ampeg amplifier and that, that sound he got. But um, so when you encountered Eddie, were you inspired by his sound? You know, the, the truth is, is um, I mean, I loved Eddie's playing and loved playing with him, but no, I was, I was like, he was definitely more in that, you know, swing era style of playing in a lot of ways. And I was like, I mean, I was a raging bebopper. I mean, Bird is what made me want to play this music. So our sensibilities were kind of, you know, I was a far more aggressive kind of player. I, you know, harmonically, I, I heard more of the bebop things. And rhythmically, uh, you know, I was coming out of a more aggressive rhythm section, you know, like Miles Second Band, you know, the Miles Quintet and Coltrane and the Miles Second Band. That was kind of more the way I wanted to play. So, I mean, our styles fit well together, but I was really, I was more influenced by him by just who he was and his, his, his mentoring spirit. Mm-hmm. He definitely showed me a lot of cool chords, you know, voicings, and uh, hit me to a lot of great tunes that I didn't know that kind of mentoring. But in terms of stylistic, I was already pretty much on the way of playing a certain way mm-hmm. on a path. And so that, that really wasn't the part that, you know, that was his value mostly to me. Right. So were guys in San Francisco playing that way that, that you, that you were hearing Bruce. So you had guys that you, yeah. That you were. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, maybe not so many guitar players, but there were great, I mean, when I was growing up, man, we had Bobby Hutcherson, Woody Shaw, Joe Henderson, George Cables, wow. yeah. you know, Eddie Marshall, Eddie Moore, um, Manny Boyd, James Leary. The town was just full of, you know, and that's just, I mean, that's just the ones you might have heard of. I can name another two dozen that were on that level that you haven't heard of. Right. Um and that's what the town was like. So that that scene, then you know, we were calling it modern jazz, but it was really kind of like hard bop and bebop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that was raging. You know, we had a club called Keystone Corner where bands played six nights a week. So it was Art Blakey one week, Rosson Roland Kirk, Bobby Hutcherson, uh, Bill Evans, George Benson. I mean, that's what I got to grow up every night going, you know, after my gigs, I'd go there. If I wasn't gigging, I was there hanging out. The list goes on. I mean, Elvin's band and McCoy's band and Max Roach's band, you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, Freddie Hubbard's band and Grover Washington, you know, 
And so that was my university, just being there. And, and of course, I ended up playing in a lot of those bands. I played with Bobby and I played with Freddie. There was that scene of the music that I wanted to play really happen. And Eddie wasn't really in that scene. He was in kind of more of the uh, scene that had been before that. Right. But which was full, which were guys I worked with a lot. Guys, you know, you might not have heard of, but, you know, Al Plank and Chuck Travis and, I mean, all these, Flip Nunez, all these guys who were just George Mervis gods, you know what I mean? Yeah. They were a little bit more, they weren't really into that scene, the Keystone Corner scene, but they were playing their ass off and we would work a lot. I mean, it was just, it was an open town. It was so great to grow up there because I was interested. I mean, there's a lot of organ trios particularly it was mostly over in oakland but some in san francisco too a lot of organ clubs where these great organists who came mostly out of the church but were you know, jazz organ jimmy smith ish kind of players mm-hmm. and there were lots of that happening there were uh salsa bands you know latin jazz i mean the Esca- pete escovito the escovito brothers lived in their bay area so they had bands going and you know there was that and and there was a great uh, avant-garde scene. Sonny Simmons lived there. Uh, the Moffat family. They were all living in the... And, and, they, and everybody was like, this was a time where if you wanted to play, cool, come play. So I had this really... Of course, my main thing was kind of bebop and hard bop. That's what I wanted to do at that time. But all these other things I was interested in and worked at and did too. And that was the real change, because when I moved to New York, New York was going through a period, and I think it's still that way a little bit, but it was really going through a really strong period of you had to belong to a clique, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were going to play bebop, no fucking around with the Brecker Brothers and the fusion shit over at 7th Avenue South. If you're playing, if you're going to play a Latin scene, you know, no bebopping. You know, I mean, it was like, for me, that was such a strange thing coming from San Francisco in such an open kind of environment and and i think it's why ultimately with that and i was in two bands at the time i was in uh bobby hutcherson's band and richie cole's band and they were both based in san francisco so between new york being kind of not as open as i would like to to have been and all my gigs and tours kind of started in san francisco and ended in san francisco and the rehearsals were in san francisco the kind of I just found myself after a year or two just moving back. The Bay Area has always intrigued me so much. I know a lot of great jazz happened then. Of course, today it's it's so different. Going to New York, like around this time, I imagine that you were you had been playing with Woody Shaw before you played with with Richie, right? So was he out there? And was I, he- I never was in his band. I did sessions with him, and I got to play with him and hang out with him and get to know him, and have some really amazing conversations with him I bet. but yeah. i mean i would never i mean i don't put him on my bio because you know i've just played a few gigs with him and played some time some sessions with him you know i knew him i mean it's not like i worked with him. yeah i'm always curious about guys move from one scene to another who are people that were kind of maybe mentoring them or taking them under their wing or letting them play on the bandstand. I know, of course, you and Richie had gone way back and there's so much great. Yeah. I love watching the clips of you guys at the Vanguard in 81. Um, there's so much energy 
on the bandstand, man. I mean, and like, I could tell you guys must have been playing like that every single night, whether it was at the Vanguard or somewhere else, too, you know? Yeah, yeah, that was a time, I mean, when energy, was, you know, I mean, it was like a thing, you know, we were kind of people actually, I think why that band became so popular is we kind of played with almost a rock and roll energy, you know, even though we were playing jazz and straight ahead, we'd kind of taken it to this like bizarre nuclear level. And we really, we were really having fun. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's, that, of course, that was not weird then. It's kind of weird now, but it's not, it wasn't weird then for, you know, like, I mean, I work with Dizzy and Dizzy's band was as much comedy half the time as it was playing at that time. Bobby Hutcherson was, was a funny motherfucker and he would tell jokes and Dexter was too, Dexter Gordon, you know I mean? There was like a joyful spirit surrounding the music, mm -hmm. uh, but we took that again to like a steroidal level with Richie. We just like upped it. And I believe that's why we were so popular. And then it just got, it, it kind of got crazier and crazier and crazier, you know, and eventually I, I bailed. I couldn't support really what was happening. And I, that's the kind of gig you don't keep just for the money or something. You know, if you're not, if you can't really a hundred percent invest yourself in where the band leader is going, then you need to get out because they don't deserve that. It sounds like you were really in touch still with the West Coast. I know you were still playing at the Monterey Jazz Festival around the, those times, right? So you were, were you coming out the West Coast frequently while you were in New York at that time? That period of New York was quite short. It was like a year and a half. And it was, of course, a really bad time for New York, really crime-ridden. It was scary. I mean, Times Square now is like Disneyland. Back then, it was like, a, it was scary shit. Even criminals didn't go there. They were scared. There was lots of mugging. It was a really different time. And that but that didn't bother me. I mean, I was young and pretty big and no one really bothered me. I, I kept my eyes out, you know what I mean? And yeah. I never really had any big trouble there. But uh, yeah, I was only there for a year and a half. And, and I, because of like Richie going on the road and rehearsing and all that and Bobby going on the road and rehearsing and all that. And a lot of our gigs would be Keystone Corner for a week. Right. I mean, I was just back home, like staying with my mom a lot more. And I'm kind of looking at like I'm ran, I got this apartment in New York and I go there and I try to get back in the scene, but it's kind of a closed scene. And then I'm working here and, you know, and I'm, a, I'm from San Francisco. I'm a California boy. You know, it just didn't see, right then. It didn't seem like a really good idea. Looking back, I'm not so sure I made the right call. Interesting. Do you feel like looking back, maybe that the scene might have opened up a little bit more or um, but it's it's hard, Bruce, too, because you've made such an impact on the West Coast. And everybody knows you, man. I mean, you've made an impact in jazz guitar, too, you know. Well, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. You know, I just do the best I can. But really, I mean, in all honesty, New York is the capital of jazz. Mm -hmm. If you jazz music, I mean, if you look at the cover of Jazz Times, you look at the cover of Downbeat, if you find one guy in five years that doesn't live in New York, that's a lot. You know, or, or isn't based in New York or somehow have a huge history with New York city, like, you know, just so much of the jazz world is there. And, and, and so, you know, I'm not saying I would have done any better than I've done being there. Cause there's, there's a million great players there who haven't done a whole lot, you know what I mean? And then there are some that have done really well. I mean, so I'm, I'm not so egotistical to think that I would have broken through and been one of the guys, but, Obviously, I would have had a better chance to do that in New York City.
That's mm-hmm. all I can say. Got it. And and yes, my sensibility is very Western. It just is. So like the things that I have accomplished in these 40 years since I left New York are are things that probably wouldn't have happened for me had I been in New York. The Western horse riding, which led to cowbop, the you know, my writing of novels, which which are very centric to the West Coast and West Coast mindset those kinds of things a lot of my bands that i've started are kind of you know they would work fine in new york but a lot of my things wouldn't have you know so i don't know i mean it's like those kind of questions are yeah i mean i probably should have stayed in new york but i didn't and so i did the best i could with what i got and i'm not regret of anything, particularly right now. When you moved back to the West Coast, was this a time that you kind of reconnected with Ray Brown and Barney Kessel in the 80s around that time? Because you were recording on Concord Records around this time too? Yeah, no. Had I switched to Concord then? No. I I switched to Concord just around that time when I got back to the West Coast. Yeah. A little after that. Yeah. Barney I'd played with before I even moved to New York and I was playing with him when I was living in New York. No. So Barney, I, I was connected to, you know, since the 77 or so. Mm -hmm. Um, and Ray, yeah, Ray, maybe more West Coast things. He used to call me more because he had a club for a while in Santa Monica. And so he used to call me to come down and play with him for a few days at a time. Wow, it was that called mu- Loa, L-O-A. Mm-hmm. Wow. That must have been incredible to play with Ray. I just, he's one of the guys I, I've for so many years played along to the record, studied his things, talked to guys who studied with him. He was such a um, teacher, um, but man, just like such a heavyweight, you know, especially out here. That answers part of my question too, Bruce, that I had for you today. I'm going to play something and flip it over to the guys, but um, just really quick too about Concord. Did um, did you meet Carl Jefferson? Because he was, was he in Concord, California at that time too? Yes. Um, okay. Carl Jefferson was a car salesman. He, was, he owned car dealerships and he started that label um, and he loved the music and his, the first Concord jazz festivals were in this little like I think it was, someone will correct me here, a middle school or an elementary school, uh, like, recess area, you know, like, where, you know, the playground. Mm-hmm. And I saw Joe and Herb, Joe Ellis, uh, Joe Pass and Herb Ellis, wow. playing with Ray Brown and Jake Hanna, and in that little playground area, <laughs> you know, in the mid-70s. And, um, and he just loved the music, and he was quite wealthy, so he started recording all his favorite people. He was very much a hands-on guy with the record. I mean, he had a very strong aesthetic, who he liked, and he had definitely had a specific thing about how he wanted to be treated. And uh, he was very, like, you know, kind of like you hear all those old-time radio record producer dudes. You know, he had something he liked, he had something he wanted, and you were either on his good side or you were on his shit side. I mean, he would go from, I'm honored to having you on the label to, I honor my commitments in like a day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which obviously the second statement doesn't really make you feel too wanted. <laughs> I mean, imagine, you know, the record company president calling you up saying, I honor my commitments. In other words, well, you got two more records to do. I'm going to do them because I said I would. But, you know, I sure as yeah. Don't want to do it, you know. <laughs> uh, whereas, whereas a week before he could call you up and tell you that you know you the, the, the guiding light on the on your instrument or something, mm-hmm. you know. And, and it was always traceable back to an interaction or something 
I was a kind of, I mean, as you probably, as you guys all know, because you know me so well, know that I kind of say shit, especially if it sounds funny to me or if it's true, I'll just say it. You know what I mean? It's like with people like that, that's not necessarily the best way to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine, man. I can imagine Ray Ray Brown and him, the conversations those guys must have had. Yeah, Ray you know? Ray and Jake Hanna were the two that really kind of got away with it. And a lot of it of course was their age. They were they were of similar age to Carl and they were the they were his best pimps. I mean, if Ray Brown called you up, you're going to record for this label. If Jake Hanna called you to do something, you were going to do it. I don't care who you were in music. So it gave him access to a huge, you know what I mean? Yeah. Let's face right. it, he had access to incredible pool of talent simply because those guys were in his stable. Yeah, just to play a little clip for everybody, and then we'll shift gears here to, for, the, for the remainder of the interview. This clip that I want to play, Bruce, is actually the first clip I ever heard of yours when I was in high school. I bought the, and it, this this album isn't on Concord, it's on Telarc. It was um, Ray Brown, some of my best friends are guitarists. Oh, okay, yeah. And I love the trading that you and Ray do. Um, especially, it, it's just like for a guitar player, just to hear the interaction and your sound. I mean, you just sound killing on this record. So I just want to play just a little bit of this, and then we're going to transition over to. But think about it: some of my best friends are guitar players. Is one of the rarest sentences in the English language. <laughs> Wait, is rare? Some of my best friends are trumpet players, though. I think that's rare because that's that was another one. <laughs> I know that features Ray a little bit too, Bruce, but I, I had to. Ray, well, I mean, Ray had such a bouncy time feel. It was, it's so, I mean, so many people think of Ray as like, it's like this pounding, you know, quarter note guy on top of the beat, obviously. But when you listen to that, you hear so much bounce and friendliness and joy. I think a lot of the young Ray Brown, they, they miss that part of what he brought. Cause I, I mean, as a person who played with him a lot, I and, and listen to him a lot. I, that's the first thing I hear before I hear that thing that everybody does, that Ray Brown ish thing. I hear this yeah. like pillow, this friendliness, this smile on every quarter note. I think in, in that, particularly in his like trades, you can just hear that so yeah. well right there. Totally. And and a lot of the Concord records, like this one up here, you know, there's just a bunch of them. You hear that that feel too, man. Well, again, these are just, it's so, I just love hearing you talk about all these guys and it's so fun to learn more about yeah. you in this way.
first uh, heard about your plane and, and got a chance to see you, it was actually at Pearls in San Francisco. Uh, I think it was with Vince Laudiano's group. I was living in, you know, grew up in Marin, living in the Bay Area, and I would go hang there. I think at this time, though, you had already moved to Carmel, so you weren't around locally as much as, as I would have liked. But back then, I thought you were the most swinging guitar player I had ever heard, and I still think that way today. I just remember that performance, the fire that you brought on stage. I think you've always had that in your playing, which is a really unique part of what you do. Uh, I wanted to ask you today a little bit about uh, sort of your recording catalog and sort of the experiences that you had in the 80s making records and sort of what it's like for you now. I was listening recently to Junkyard Duo, which I know is your most recent thing. And I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about sort of the differences between where you were artistically in the 80s making these really swinging albums and where you kind of how those records are being produced and then how you think of it now. Even when you've done stuff like Formanism and Book of Foreman, how do you think of making albums now? And and maybe talk a little bit more about Junkyard Duo, because that's a little bit of a departure from some of your right, previous right. stuff. Right, uh, Yeah, this is Cow Bob. Um, yeah, you know, well, I mean, Perry, you're talking about, like, the world changing around me. You know, of course, I mean, I'm still just, I, all I really want to do is swing and play bebop. I mean, even though I drew, I put a cowboy hat on it or I, I play a dobro, you know, out by, a, right. you know, in some junk junkyard somewhere, you know, really when you hear through it, that same kernel of, you know, energetic, happy, swinging, bebop and melodic playing, that's just yeah. always there for me. I mean, it's in many ways, I think the world, but the world really changed so much with Napster, yeah. you know, I mean, we, we really, we're still living in the shockwaves of that when we could make records, could make some money on them, where record companies were actually pursuing us to, right. to put music out. And so, you know, you were thinking more as your records, it was a, it, you wanted it to be a really good representation of what you were doing live in the world mm -hmm. because they, they, they kind of were a, a, a synchronous business. It was all part of your, your business thing. And then as um, as Napster came along and everything became free and you couldn't sell records anymore and record companies decided, well, shit, I'm not going to invent, you know, then we all had to start paying for it ourselves and producing the things ourselves unless you were like uh, one of the upper guys. And even them, they weren't selling much. Everybody was, you know, the people who were producing Wynton Marsalis records for and Herbie Hancock records were pissed off, the jazz mm -hmm. ones. I think that fundamentally changed how we did things and, you know, and what, why we did things. And to me, at least to me, I, I really like, there's a whole hole of my, of my career where I didn't record because I just didn't yeah, see they, reason to do it. Yeah, uh, right. It was like, you know, I mean, how am I going to get it out to the radio stations? It's not going to help me tour. No one's going to buy it. I mean, why am I going to waste my time? I just want to, I'm, I'm working plenty of gig right, and having right, a great right. time playing music. And I'm still writing music and developing bands and doing all these things. I just kind of lost my impetus to be involved in that part of it because it just seemed like it had gotten so pirated and inconsequential. Now, of yeah. course, a, a jazz radio DJ would probably take offense at that. And I and believe me, those guys are heroes because they continued on yeah. doing it, yeah. and they still have. But 
really, you know, when it comes down to what it has to do with my life, I mean, how much does it have to do with my life? So then, then it became like, well, I made records to sell at my gigs. Well, then they, they were also representations, whatever bands I had. So I kept in that mode, but I had to keep it in the mode of, well, I got to produce this myself, you know, cause, uh, my options were to produce it myself or, or go with a smaller label. And the smaller labels, generally, they expect you to produce it yourself. Then they just sell the records back to you to sell. Exactly. But, yeah, but, yeah, but they'll, do the, they'll do the radio and the promotion for you. That's, you know, that's their basic. But, you know, I knew who those guys were. I'd been working with them already back when the big labels were going. Right. I had a personal relationship with those people. So I could hire them myself. Mm-hmm. and be in control of that so it, it just in no point did it make sense for me for the labels that would have had me <laughs> to go with them it was just better to be by myself but it was still back to like i saw it as ever since napster made it okay and you guys are kids of this i mean you don't even remember when it happened you're all like born in the 80s right i think it was more like mid 90s i don't know okay. if it was early 90s see, i mean still. you long before you were buying records and involved in that. And and the whole world just got into this, you know, scene of like, well, okay, I mean, the record companies are already ripping off the artists, so it's okay for me to rip off the record companies because I'm stealing from a from a, you know, yeah. a, I mean, like and I'm and I remember having these 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 conversations with people who would probably be a little older than you now. Say, well, don't you realize that this is like our product and you're stealing it? And if you're not going to support totally. it, how are we going to be able to keep doing it? And don't you care? Totally. Basically, like, you know, no, it's a fish. And then their answer always was, it's free on the radio. And I said, no, I get paid when it's played on the radio. You don't understand. Very little, but I get paid. <laughs> and it's just, it's just this escalating thing that, well, now it's free. Now it's free. So the only way to sell records was on the gig. Well, if you're selling records, because then you could, you could then get, you know, somebody hears you, they think you're great, they want to support you. It's more like philanthropy than actual commerce. Mm-hmm. They love you, like you guys, you know, you have this great band, people yeah. go hear you, they're really inspired by what you do, they want you to keep doing it, because it's so great. So how do they do that? They buy your CD, that's one of the ways to give you a little extra money, because maybe they know that when they paid for that ticket, the house is getting some of the money, and when if, if they bought right. a drink... The house is getting that money, and they want to directly support you and encourage you to keep going. So they buy a CD. Well, that was a whole different reason to buy a CD than back in the 80s when I was. That has kind of changed my whole, I mean, of course, I'm on other people's records, and you know, and that's changed, too, the way people are making their records, obviously. I generally made records that were, there were projects I had going that I was working. So like, you know, like, okay, Cowbop is doing a tour. I have Cowbop CDs, you know, people can buy that. I, if I play with my trio, I have a trio CD, you know what I mean? People can buy that. Uh, Junkyard Duo was working a lot, you know, over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And so it was just made sense to have a product to help people support us, you know, which is such right. a whole different way of thinking about making music than I have this grandiose idea of a sound i want to bring to the world maybe i'm a little too cynical maybe i need to just go ahead and you know forget it just just it, like a painter needs to paint a picture or a writer needs to write a book i just need to make it and not give a shit about where it sits in the world you know well i think you're being honest and you're being realistic and what i find really fascinating is that you've been through so many of these changes in your 40 plus career even just talk hearing you talk about the ways that the bay area changed 
and the way New York has changed. Uh -huh. and on top of that, the way the music industry has changed and how you've kind of weathered that and are now producing your own stuff now, which is great, by the way. Junkyard Duo is awesome. I love listening to that. Well, and like one of the things, the whole idea that everything, I mean, I start a lot of shit that I never get, it never gets adopted through me. Other people do it after I do it. And then it becomes a cool thing, you know, a viral thing or whatever. But like I made all those tracks one minute long for a reason because <laughs> I wanted people because of Instagram is why but I wanted yeah, people yeah, yeah. to take those things and make their own video of any kind put just like a, a you know a, a movie to it and then right. post it on post it on Instagram and a couple people did but you know my idea was wow why don't we open source this whole thing you know I've got this one little clip it's like the music of Junkyard Duo is very playing oriented but it's also very sonic and ambient too you yeah. know it's yeah. evocative of a lot of cool shit yeah. so hey why don't you hear a track and make some little video montage and post it yourself I'm not going to charge you I'm not going to beat you up about it you know this is like open source art for a community yes. which I yes. think somebody's going to come along and do very successfully because it's a good idea yeah your whole sort of concept of trying to evolve with the industry reminds me of the motto of the marines which is improvise adapt and overcome and i think you've really uh, done that throughout your career and in, in one way that i think you've uh shown that is jazz masters workshop which i just wanted to talk a little bit about you actually did go to a couple of those sessions right i did benefit from that yeah uh, as a high schooler living in the bay area yeah i wish i'd gone to more it was just trying to get to know you from where i was and everything i think originally meeting you at stanford jazz workshop uh -huh. uh, but then that drew me into the Jazz Masters workshop and meeting other teachers like Mimi Fox and I think John Stoll, I originally met through that as well. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to talk to you about forming Jazz Masters workshop because I know it was a nonprofit, it was a 5013C, something that John and I have loosely considered uh, in our lives with New West as well. And I just, a question was, how did you manage being the founder of a nonprofit organization and then continuing to progress as a guitar player because as we all know the guitar is a demanding instrument you know it takes a lot of time and to keep up on the scene takes a lot of time and how did you balance those things well um it wasn't easy it was a lot of work that all started because of a fervent belief and you know i was it was the 90s had gone by and pretty much everybody's answer to teaching this music was make a video. Then we were like making videos and it was, we were slowly adopting DVDs, but make a video or sell a book. That was the whole idea about the, the lineage of this instrument of this music had kind of moved into a world of materials to sell for educational purposes. And I have right. always been, this is bullshit. You know, a book, a video, it's not, I mean, yes, you get great information, but without being able to play with good players, it's not going to work. It just, it doesn't happen. That's not what this music is about. This music is about playing music and like with a, a seasoned professional playing and a young person feeling what that feels like and interacting and taking responsibility to make it work, you know, when it's mm -hmm. like, like it's on the line and, and where there's that intention, attention to detail and, you know, importance of focus and respect and integrity and all that stuff that happens when you're around somebody you really admire. And, and to me, that was like the missing link. And everybody was 
seemed happy to just jettison it from the whole process hmm. is what it felt like to me. Hmm. So I said, well, I've got to change this. And I was, I had just moved down to Monter- Carmel Monterey and, uh, and I had a lot, of, and I was working with the Monterey Jazz Festival. So I had a lot of great students, young kids in high school and middle school. And I said, yeah. okay, I'm just going to park my ass in a community center. I found this community center to give me the space and let everybody know if they want to play every Monday afternoon, I'm going to be here playing for a couple hours. And, and, and there was, and then, and then I would, from the parents, I would kind of ask for donations because when I had to go on the road, I would hire a sub to come down from the Bay Area or right, something. Right. Calvin Keys or Mimi Fox or John Stoll, a lot of people did it. And, and the rule was you can't sell them anything, you got to play with them. The whole thing is you got to play with these kids. That's it. I mean, if they want to buy your records after, fine. No selling books. This is right. all about playing. I don't want you talking about to them. I, you know, if they're not playing, then you're not doing your job. This isn't a workshop. This isn't a master class. And if and if you got kids, if all they can do is play one chord, then play one chord and make it swing or you know make it groove, and then show them what to do with it. Then add another chord. Play the blues. You know, teach them a tune. And and just like the music has always been handed down through generations. And so I was yeah. very adamant about that. It was going along fine. And then uh, I was at a gig, some Silicon Valley guy put to, he, he was an entrepreneurial expert and he believed that jazz musicians were very entrepreneurial and thought outside the box. So he put a concert on and then he interviewed us all. There were like, it was Anton Schwartz and me and okay. I forget who the rhythm section was. And they came to me and I just started, I just started talking about like, this is what I think is wrong. It's like, we're all trying to sell stuff. You know, and, and and sorry, you guys are all software guys and whatever, and you're looking for the new way to teach this shit. But really, let's be honest, it's about people getting together and really taking an interest. Right. And we have 100%. this amazing pool of resources, jazz musicians, who are not doing anything during the day, pretty much. And we have all these kids who need music. Why the hell aren't we putting them together? And one guy who was there said, will you go to lunch with me? I want to talk to you about this. So I went to lunch with him, and then he arranged a, another meeting with a guy who were like, these are like some of the heaviest VC, venture capital guys in Silicon Valley at the time. They asked me a few questions, and I said, this is what I want to do, and this is what I plan to do, and why I plan to do it. And they said, wow, I can't shoot this down. And, I, and the other guy said, neither can I. And they looked at me, and they said, you don't realize what you just heard. I said, no, why don't you tell me? They said, well, you basically just earned an MBA at Stanford. Because what they did was they would, people would pitch them, you know, companies. And if they took it, they couldn't shoot it down. Then you basically got your MBA and then they invest money in it. This was, of course, a nonprofit. So they said, okay. And they helped get me a lawyer to get a nonprofit status. And they they themselves put down a sizable chunk of money to get this going. And you were a benefactor of that because I went from that one, the first thing I did was I went from that one in, um, in Monterey to Monterey, Carmel, Oakland, and San Francisco. And San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Ned Boynton ran it and it was in Rico's. In Rico's in North Beach. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and, and, and then I branched out to New York and I started running programs in New York and in Chicago and in LA and it just got too big. And I mean, I only wish you guys would have been around 
and you know interested in running something like that because all right. really by the time i'd gotten back and going to use you know once usc happened it was like usc and the road and game and jazz masters it was too much and i just didn't want to be an executive director of anything i wanted to stay artistic exactly. director yeah. program yeah. developer and i love giving speeches about the importance of this that i wanted to stay involved with but I didn't want to like be the accountant and the grant writer and the and the you know bookkeeper and the janitor and the phone you know and the, and the receptionist you know all those things that I was I just couldn't do anymore and never found the right people to take over those jobs, so I shut it down. I'm glad that it existed while it did. It left a huge mark on a lot of guitar players throughout the West Coast and really all over. On behalf of. A guitar player that benefited from that thank you it, it warms my heart really it does to see you happy and playing so great and you know to know that i was able to provide some inspiration you know through through all the great people you got to meet through those programs you know Definitely. through the money we raised and yeah. i mean i raised a lot of fucking money i'm yeah. good at this shit yeah you know i I didn't yeah. know I was, but we raised well over a million dollars. Yeah, I mean, there was money in the Bay Area and Carmel yeah. Monterey at that time for sure. So um, I have to ask you one more question, though. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of the Red Guitar. Uh, definitely a big fan of Grumps TV. Uh -huh. uh, the whole idea of seeing you really speak and kind of create this narrative with your words to your audience. Uh -huh. I think you've always done that with your playing, but now you're doing it both ways you're doing it as you're playing guitar and as you're speaking to people can you just talk a little bit about this idea of a narrative when you're an artist and whether that's something you're doing through improvising or something you're doing through writing things like the poetry like the red guitar how do you get across a narrative to an audience interesting well you know first of all you know you have to really believe in it whatever you're saying you know, I mean, you guys have, some of you have interacted with me as students, but you've always been around me. So, you know, I was a product of really great mentoring, guys like Donald Bailey. And I think of Donald Bailey almost first when I think of that, because he was always the one that pulled on my shirt. You know, it's like, says, no, man, you know, you, what do you got? You got to do something more than this. I, was, I would always say, we called him Duck. Duck, I'm playing bebop, man, you know, with you guys. That's what I want to do. He says, you know, aren't I good enough? I always heard him like saying, no, you're not, you know, you need to get your own thing because you really aren't hanging with us. When he, what he, was, he would always say, no, you're already doing this with us. We're looking for you. You're the young guy. You're supposed to bring the new stuff to the table. It stung, of course, <laughs> but it was a challenge. And I realized that, you know, yeah, um, maybe my thing, you know, and, and I'm looking back at myself, my thing really isn't like, I'm not going to find a new sound for the guitar with a pedal. You know, I mean, I just, like the natural thing uh, i'm not gonna be the guy that does this or that really my my strength is in telling a story and in um putting a new frame around what i do yeah you know i mean when you look at it like cowbop is really the same thing as my trio except for i i've put like a western frame on it and we're playing songs but basically like what you, what you create with, you know, like you can look at it in your hand. You have your background, your perspective, your aesthetic, your skill set, and your resources. This is your hand. And with those things, you make things. Well, naturally, I'm a comedian of sorts. I like to be a comedian. I'm a storyteller. I write novels. You know what I mean? I'm in love with storytelling in the English word. I love Mark Twain. I love Will Rogers. You know what I mean? It's like 
These are things that inspire me greatly. And I love musicians that seem to have a storytelling narrative to their playing, along with the technical stuff, which is that's what I hear in Bird. As much as the, the excitement and the, you know, all that, I hear the story in Bird. Like it's Hank Williams to me in a weird way. Yeah. So to me, that's always been the case. And as like when I got that red guitar, that's how I got that idea for that show and telling. And, and yeah, I can talk at the same time as I can play. I got no problem. I mean, I can play giant steps and carry on a conversation. It's weird, I know, but it's no big deal if you can do it. You know what I mean? It doesn't make me better at either one. It's just something I can do. So being a writer and a person who wants to entertain people and joke and da 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 tell a story, well, it just made sense that I would just sort of play and tell a story about how the guitar took over my life. You know, I mean, it, it's almost like I wonder why I didn't think of it sooner. Yeah, it's yeah. so obvious. And, you know, yeah. and I'm not saying that's good for everybody. Like, not everybody is as energetic as me. Not as everybody is as verbal as I am. Not as everybody wants to entertain an audience, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that because everybody should do what they believe in. That's what their right. integrity is. And that's right. the music. We, we need all of everybody to be themselves in this. Right. Yeah. But yeah, my thing is it just sort of happened to me and to come to terms with who I am. And of course, like things really, let's face it, the red guitar is very groundbreaking. No one's ever done what that is. Cowbop. There have been fringes of Western swing and jazz always kind of mingling and marrying, but no one really went as deep in as I did. You know, yes, you can see Spade Cooley and Bob Wills and all that shit in there, but it's it's a whole other thing, you know, and it took balls, big balls, steel balls, because let's face it, when I started that band, everybody hated me. I mean, no, all the jazz musicians, so. all the jazz musicians, you guys so. are kids. You didn't. I'm talking about the older guys, you know, my peers, because, you know, all of them, like they saw a cowboy hat and they went, oh, he's selling out. He's gone country. And yeah. the country people who saw a cowboy hat went, great, a country band. All of a sudden we start playing jazz. Well, they hated us for sure. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you know, it just took enough open minded people. And of course, we were in the cowboy scene, not really the country scene. So the cowboy scene sort of accepted us. Why? Because I am a cowboy. Because a lot of those people know I can rope and ride with them. So there's no problem. And then you kids got older and you didn't have all those preconceptions. So then I had a wing of, of younger people digging the music. Well, you know, then it's slow. Then, then my peers finally heard it. They finally like sat down instead of hating on it. They sat down and listened to it. And everybody wanted to join the band because it's so much fucking fun to play. You know, <laughs> yeah, it is fun. Yeah, it's totally fun. And the red guitar is awesome. It's like a you're like a modern day Arlo Guthrie or something with Al's yeah. restaurant, you know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, telling, I telling a story playing. Well, I, I need to revisit that because, you know, I hadn't really realized that connection there. I'm sure there's a lot of things to mind. Thank you for that. You know, I was kind of more going down like a Mark Twain, Will Rogers kind of loop, you know, with just bebop guitar thrown in on it. But I'm going to check out that because you're right. There is a real um, there is a real similarity there and a lot of interesting yeah. ideas that I can get from it.
the first time I, I saw you play was at Viva Cantina with Cow Bob. Uh-huh. And you you had um it was great. I loved it. I remember at one point you were you were playing this long dramatic intro and you had David, the sax player, run over to your your Fender amp and like crank the reverb. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, that would have been Mambo Italiano, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought that was so cool. I I totally enjoyed the whole thing. Um, yeah, that, that was a spaghetti western. You know, that was our spaghetti western kind of tip of the hat. You know, I love it, man. <laughs> I loved it. I hope you don't mind, but I'd just love to ask you some gear questions. I see that. Sure. I see that red, beautiful red guitar behind you. Um, also, yeah. I'm curious about your your Ibanez model. Uh huh. Do you still play that much, or have you? You know, I that pull out? it out just to make sure it's still there. You know, nobody's stolen it. <laughs> Not very much. It's it's. A, but will it's a, such a great guitar. Yeah, I'll bet. And, and and one thing that really makes a great guitar, as you guys all know, is if you've played it a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, a guitar. Most of my guitar maker friends will all tell you, you know, a guitar found and played is better than a guitar made. So that guitar was cool when I got it, but what it became, what it is now, when you play this thing, you'll go, oh shit! It's just got so much. I mean, I played that thing nonstop for what twenty years, and. It's a great guitar. What it was was back in the day. I, you know, we've all heard the stories of guys going into uh, pawn shops and finding an old L5 for fifty dollars, right? You probably don't hear that anymore because the internet has killed that. You can't do that anymore because now, even if you're in uh, some small town, all you got to do is go on GBase or uh, Red Reverb and go, "Oh, this thing's worth that," you know. So. You're not going to find like, oh, my uncle played guitar and I, you know, it's under the bed, $50, you know, kind of thing. You know, like Ray Brown got his bass for a hundred bucks. But I, but that we're talking pre-internet. So that was still happening. So I would go to music stores and pawn shops just when I was on the road. You know, I had time off during the day. That was the kind of a fun thing to do. You meet musicians at music stores and you might find, you know, you might find the guitar for 50 bucks, whatever. And that was when Ibanez was making the Lawsuit era guitar. I don't know if you know about those. Like in the late '70s, mm-hmm. they were copying exactly like L5s and Johnny Smiths and stuff, and and they were actually better than the than the guitar oh. Gibson, Gibson was making at that time. I mean, they weren't better than the older ones, but Gibson was really kind of that was not their best period. Let's just say. And so I just wrote a letter. I don't even, I found an address somewhere. Somebody in a music store said, well, these are the people I deal with, you know. So I just wrote a letter saying, man, your guitars are pretty much the best things I'm playing right now. And congratulations. And if you ever want an endorsee kind of guy or something, you ever want to talk, you know, I'm here. But thank you for making such a good product, whatever, something like that. I was in Nagoya, Japan, on the road with Richie a couple of years later. And, and these guys come backstage with a guitar and they open it up and it was the, uh, by then they were already making the George Benson guitar. Mm-hmm. They, they, the, the lawsuit had happened and they'd stopped making those L5 copies and stuff and they'd gone on to their own model. They pulled out a Joe Pass model before Joe had even seen it. You know, the one with the, uh, mm-hmm. the one pickup in it, the, mm-hmm. the maple top, you know, that, mm-hmm. that one. And they, they showed it to me and they said, wow, you know, this is the joke. And they had the letter I'd written. And so they're backstage and they show me this thing. And, and they said, uh, well, we, we'd like to make you a guitar. I said, okay. And they said, do you have any specifications? And I said, yeah, I wanted this. I want this. And I, I, I uh, had a really good neck on an old .NET 335 that I liked that, um, that I'd sold, but I had the specs for it. And I said, I'll just send you some specs when I go home because it's all... And, and so I mailed them the specs 
And they kind of said, well, you know, this is so similar to this. Would you mind if, it, if we use this instead of this? You know, there's a couple of little things. Basically, what I did was I took an L5 and I gave it a haircut. A little off the sides, a little off the top, you know what I mean? But ba- So I wanted to make it easier to get onto an airplane. Yeah. The point is I wanted an L5 that was a little more portable. That was what I invented. You know, two pickups in the space that the L5 is a, a, a spruce top, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff maple sides and back really great neck and they made it and they i mean they just made it and sent it to me there is one funny story i went back to japan during the production of it so they had it and they had uh, the body and the neck they were like separate they hadn't but they had the inlay in in you know like in in the neck and right. and in the nameplate you know where you know it says joe pass or pat Matheny or george benson you know that last fret has that mm-hmm. thing in the well, they had my name in there, except for they'd spelled my name Bluce for me. No. Yes. Really? Yes. <laughs> no. It was so funny <laughs> that, that, that I showed it to the, to the other guys in the band, and we are, like, peeing in our pants. That's too good, man. That's <laughs> and too when, good. They, when they realized what we were laughing at, they were embarrassed. Oh, and yeah, so they popped sure. the thing out and broke it. And, oh, and no. When I really? It was for yeah <laughs> blue that is an amazing subsequent fret jobs mm-hmm. bruce foreman's gone from it now because uh-huh. i give it god it's only they had about five fret jobs you know i mean i played it so much right and um anyways but interesting story about that guitar and i'm sorry i'm taking so long no, that, no, that guitar has a it. has a very interesting story is um so uh, a couple years later i'm at the nam show and uh, I've noticed that, they, that they're now making a Joe Pass Epiphone guitar, mm-hmm. which doesn't look at all like the Joe Pass Ibanez. Right. The Joe Pass Ibanez had the pickup way back where like a 175 pickup is and had a maple top, you know, and the Joe Pass, you know, Epiphone has two pickups and, you know, it's a very specific looking guitar, which is very different. And I, and I met the guy who was the designer of it, who was the designer at Ibanez before he switched to Epiphone. His name was Fritz. And I said to him, he was a Japanese guy, but he, his nickname was Fritz. And um, I said to him, I said, Fritz, you know that, um, that Joe Pass guitar you're making with Epiphone? He says, yeah. He says, it doesn't look like the Joe Pass Ibanez. Actually, it looks just like mine. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. I liked yours a lot better. Yours was a much better guitar, and Joe didn't care. So basically, the Joe Pass Epiphone is my design. I can totally see that too. Like, I, yeah. that's the first thing I see when I look at it. Yeah, right. No, it is. It's. I mean, and Fritz was like right up. It's just well, yours was a better guitar. We decided to make that. Put Joe's name on. And Joe didn't care because Joe was really. He didn't care. He never played those guitars, you know. So, uh, and wow. even the one that Joe had Gibson make for him is more like my guitar than the old one that he had made for. Man, you know, this podcast is called High Action. Um, uh, we got to ask, uh, what kind of action have have, have you been rocking? Wow. Well, uh, I generally, like now with uh, with my, my red guitar, because it's so much more acoustic than uh, my L5 and, uh, and my Ibanez were, um, I find that I want the action a little higher just because I get more sound. And it's such a sonic acoustic machine that... I find that I want to, 
you know, but it still would not be called high action. It would just be called medium, medium action. And I keep the neck real straight because it's a really good guitar, so you can get away with it. I use really thick strings. Are you using 13? I, I use a 13 set, but I switch out the top two to 14 and 18. So it's like 14 to 56. Wow. And um, with this guitar, I mean, you guys have, I know, I know, I know, uh, John has a, floating pickup luthier made guitar and um they really feed back like a motherfucker they just right. want to howl you know particularly the a string in the middle of the guitar but pretty much anywhere they're, they're ready to go you know <laughs> and and that was always kind of a pain in the ass having to tame it you know like why i kind of ended up back with the l5 for a long time and only used this for my red guitar shows when i was playing solo and i and back in the day, we were all experimenting. Anthony Wilson kind of started it, where we were all experimenting with acoustic strings, bronze strings on these guitars. Right, which really made the guitars sound so much better. And I, th I thought I love the way they sounded because what ends up happening is it's kind of a thing that happens with these floating pickups, or even even like the built-in pickup arch tops. The low end is so big, and the high end gets kind of thin in comparison. So that's why guys kind of darken their sound with the tone knob, you know, to get the fat notes on the top. But then what that does is just kind of create a lot of on the bottom. And then we use flat wounds and that kind of compounds that. But um, I got these, you know, with this guitar and I got the um, and, and this was really bad. The low end was just screaming and the high end was thin. And so uh I tried those acoustic strings and it felt great. I mean, it was like, wow. I, I mean, now all of a sudden the low end's tame and it's got all this richness and clarity and the high end is fucking powerful. You know, like now it's almost like a saxophone. It's like, wow, this is so, because you have to turn up so loud to get anything from the low strings that that B string is just like, Rah! you know, yeah. and that's not a frequency that wants to feed back. So you can kind of deal with it. And, um, but then my wife, came, after a couple of gigs, really like in love with that, my wife ended up coming to a gig and she said, I don't know if you know this, but whenever you play low notes, you can't hear them. I could hear them because the guitar was so damn loud and I was sitting right next to the amp. She says, out here, we're not, I mean, you, you're pantomiming. I went, oh, shit. You know, so maybe like Anthony was never that way, but maybe he has a different touch than me or he's got a different kind of pick, whatever, you know? And so I kind of went back to the regular strings and this went in the closet, you know, except for red guitar shows. And then, um, I really was trying to make it work with red guitar because my show, I just wanted to play that guitar all the time and kind of brand myself to it. And also, have a different sound. I was getting to the point where when I played my L5, I couldn't stop hearing Wes and Kenny Burrell. I just couldn't <laughs> yeah. stop. You know what I mean? Well, we hear you no matter what. I know, but, but with me, it was like, I, it was getting to a point where I was getting claustrophobic. It was like there were people in my head. And and with the red guitar, I never felt that. And it really, I mean, I listened back to recordings and there ain't that much difference in the sound of me on an L5 or this. It's really how you, how what how the artist feels. Sonically, you generally sound the same. I mean, if I play a Les Paul, I sound like that. So, but I found these strings called nickel bronze. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're made by Daddario. Mm -hmm. When they were made originally for flat pickers, because you know, like in a bluegrass band, the uh, the flat picking guitar solo is like the 
upright bass solo in a jazz band, right? Everybody's raging and everything's going, right? And then all of a sudden the flat picking solo and everything has to come down. So they made they what they decided was they'd add some nickel to the bronze strings alloy to give, give it more punch and projection. And so I called up the guy who's the rep. I mean, I'm, I'm endorsing to Dario. And I call him and says, man, this da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, what, how much, what's the percentage? You know, like, does this, because the problem with bronze strings is bronze is a non-ferrous metal. So the pickup doesn't get the wines. It only gets the core. And that's why the B string is so much bigger is because there's that big piece of wire and you've turned the pickup up so much. So I tried these nickel bronze strings and lo and behold, they're great acoustic strings, but they also... They tone down the bottom end of the arch top, and in so doing, they fatten up the high end. You will have to play louder, so certain amps are going to distort if they don't have enough headroom. So this is these strings have made it so like I use this on like loud organ trio gigs and Latin band wow. gigs, and have no problem with feedback. And if I stood right in front of the amp, I'd have it, but then I would with my L5 too. These strings kind of changed the game for me. And of course, now, I mean, I'm playing in a lot smaller groups. I mean, that's that's been, a, I'm sure you guys have noticed that, you know, I mean, the world is headed towards small groups because of just margins. Moving five, eight people around is really hard and still make any money. And if you've got a solo project like the Red Guitar or you're playing duo with somebody or a trio like you guys, it's, it's, it's actually doable because of the economics. Things have changed. I mean, back in the days of Keystone Corner, you know, when Todd Barkin was booking six nights a week of Art Blakey or Rassan or, ba or George Benson, a hotel room was like 40, 50 bucks a week. Gas was like 45 cents a gallon. Your rent was probably, even in New York, was like 150. So if you were making like 75, 100 dollars a night as a sideman, that you know, think about it. That's six hundred a week. That's like, it's well, shit. My rent at home is like two, three hundred max. A hotel room's fifty bucks. You know, sixty bucks. It's like there's money to be made here. Nowadays, a hotel room costs more than you're going to pay on an average gig, unless it's a big concert. So, I mean, yeah. so we've got this economic pressure as musicians, and one of the ways a lot of us are are working around it is we're doing smaller group yep. to cut the margin i just want to say before i pass it back to john i so appreciate your mentorship and your spirit and your playing and it's just always so fun hanging and talking and laughing and uh you know learning from you man it's always an honor oh well thank you guys well i mean before you know i also want to say how inspiring you guys all are i mean you guys so much integrity. You're all yourselves. I, you know, I, you're so badass. You know, and and you've got a lot to say. You know, we've got a particular time in the world that's going to call on a lot from us now. I'm not in the camp that believes that all of a sudden we're going to just, just go back to March. I'm not going to say that March was so great to begin with, but you know, I really think we're headed into a new world, a new quotidian, a new with the with you know. Maybe up until March, there was this sort of power play between offline versus online, analog versus digital, whatever you want to say. Boom, March made it so that digital won. The new highway, the, the equivalent of the interstate system when I was a kid, born, you know, 50s, 60s, is the Internet. It's the equivalent of the Internet, interstate, new interstate highway system. All of the business is done this way. Now, 
my suggestion to you guys is to start thinking about where it's going from here and being the guys that are there first. You know, yeah. and it might be new ways of presenting your music, new ways of making your music sound that 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 has a more that has a certain sort of resonance with the world around us. Being wide eyed about your opportunities, and you know, you guys have got all the you you know, you're badass players. You're super knowledgeable. You've got all the all the tools you need to make this work. But right now, we're we're like out at sea, and you know. This thing could go on for a long time. Mm -hmm. It might not, but I would plan for it too. And I would look at where we're headed to, to like put position yourself with strength and have the sounds that go along with this new world so that you're relevant and you can help create positive change in the world. It calls on a whole different way of looking at it, you know, while continuing to develop your craft and stay on top of your skills and all those things. And or if you just believe like, hey, eventually it's going to go away and we'll be back to what we were. That's OK, too. But I don't really feel that way. And I feel that as a mentor still, it's it's my duty to pull your chain. Like, for instance, I'm, you know, when I did Grumps TV, my TV show, my twice weekly TV show that I'm doing, it's like I thought I was going to do like four or five of them. You know what I mean? I really thought like, you know, by the end of March or beginning of April, I'd be back to everything else I was doing. And it would be just some like little blip you know, in my life. Well, I'm, I'm doing episode 40 this yeah. afternoon. Yeah. And it doesn't look like it's going away. And I'm loving doing it. And But you see, like, I'm not really recreating what we do live. Mm-hmm. I'm not just offering to my fans a free version of the red guitar, which I used to make them pay for. I'm being very careful and, you know, or with my Instagram first course of the day, I'm trying to present new things that keep a community going, but don't replace what I'm really going to want to sell when we all hang out again. I want things that are like thinking more of a terms of community building and support structure versus just, you know, okay, well, I'll just play for my friends because I don't have a gig, you know, and everybody can watch me for free now. And then like, so when this is all over, why are they going to just stop watching you for free on the internet? Just like Napster. I mean, is this a second Napster? See what happens with this. We don't need to make, we don't need to let this happen. I remember you saying, you're going to need to present yourself on videos and do do more. And here we are 15 years later, and we're still having this discussion. And I, I hope you know that we really listen to what you say and appreciate it, Bruce, because it's, it's, um, it's so valuable to continue to have this mentorship. It's part of our mission with the High Action Podcast, too, because we're having a lot of students check these podcasts out. And this is a chance for us to get off the timeline of the world around us a little bit and get on our own timeline and really document and interview uh, all of our favorite guys like yourself, man. Um, and, you know, it's it's just uh, you covered all the points today. There were so many questions all of us had and you just you got you got to so many of them, man. Wow. Well, cool. I really love that you're doing the podcast thing. I know that I've got one, too, with Scott Henderson and Troy McCubbin called Guitar Wank. Yeah. We, I think, have like 221 episodes. Wow. What's beautiful about this and why it's so important for you guys to be doing this is it's, again, creating community. It's the one thing I believe that supersedes all other endeavors we do. By creating community, we do enable our, at least we give ourselves a chance to adapt. To, to be there when it happens, because the community will support us. And even if it's not a good idea, 
we'll know because we'll get feedback and we can work it. The community, we need each other. You know, I mean, let's face it, you know, I mean, obviously, Perry in New York, you see how when you go to the clubs, how many of the cats are hanging. And, and even in L.A., you know, with the Blue Whale, you know, you've got your jazz fans and then you've got your jazz musicians. And, and this community is so important. And right now, because we're separated, this is, I think, the real great thing about the Internet is that it can enable us to stay together and even build our community bigger yes. so that when the next thing happens, we will be in better shape for it. Exactly, 100%. man. The guitar community is, is really an interesting community in and of itself. You know, we all share kind of this common thing, this instrument that we all love, but it's also, we're jazz musicians, so it goes beyond the guitar. It's the community of all the jazz artists, too. So it's so cool to hear you talking about all these cats that you played with, man. And for all of our listeners, they can check out a lot of your stuff, obviously, on you know all the streaming services and stuff where would you suggest people go check out some of your stuff your wet your website and everything um, yeah my website's a good place to kind of get an idea obviously my youtube channel has uh, some stuff has cowbop it has gigs from before of course if you just look around there's i mean i've been yeah. around so long so much stuff out there but you know again and one more i'm just gonna throw it back at you guys i mean it's like we're jazz musicians this is the way it works we get a tune, a set of changes, whatever, and we're supposed to improvise on it, right? And sometimes people throw shit at us that we ain't never seen before, and we don't know what to do with it. And it's up to our imagination to use our resources to improvise that thing that's going to work in that moment. I would like all of us to think of this time in history as, as basically a set of changes that are really fucking wild. And we got to figure out what to blow on this shit to make it work. And avoid the, the guys who are bitching and moaning. Because all they're doing is they're not doing the thing that needs to be done, which is find the sounds that work. They're like that guy on the bandstand who goes, I hate this song. He can't play it. He's not even fucking trying. It's just not a song he knows, so he's bitching about it. Stay away from those people. They're of no help anymore. This is some serious shit we're going through. We got a new set of changes. We got to be the ones to figure out how to play them, and we need to hang around the other people that are seriously doing that. Yeah, Agreed. Man. We turn to you, Bruce. We turn to you. Yeah, man. Dropping some, dropping some serious knowledge here. Seriously, um, man. Can I can I just sort of ask you something on a different topic? It's one of my favorite stories that you tell. Uh, for some of the listeners that may not be aware, you're all over the movie soundtrack. You basically are the movie soundtrack of Million Dollar Baby. And yeah. the way in which you got that call is one of my yeah. favorite stories that you tell yeah, about uh, a very famous director contacting you. Can you just maybe indulge us and, and give sure, us that? Sure, sure. I mean... We've already kind of given away the punchline, so I'll make it quick. Basically, um, this guy wanted needed to talk to me right away. He was super insistent, really a drag to my wife. And she was blocking the call because um, I had just gotten back from Europe the day before. And weirdly enough, like I'd gotten back in the afternoon, and then I got called to, to play a gig. Like, they, like, you're on the gig or something. I'm like, what gig? You know, I'm like jet lag. I just got home from San Francisco airport or whatever. And it was like Louis Belson's 80th birthday party in Carmel. So I went in to play it. And I said, well, I'm available. Sure, I'll play it, you know. And, and it, it may help me get my jet lag thing together, you know. And, um, and this guy was at that party. 
So he, that's where he got the idea to use me for this movie. So he calls and he's giving my wife a hard time. He's got to talk to me. He's got to talk to me. It's early in the morning and she wants me to sleep because she knows I'm jet lagged and I'm trying to reset my clock. But it's like a real fight on the phone. You know, she's just being a bitch to him, basically. And so I get up like, what the fuck was that? And she goes, oh, some guy, he's really got to talk to you, you know. <laughs> I like me. He wouldn't tell me why. And so the name had Cornelius Wood, right? She'd written the message, the name, and the number. And so I call this guy up, and I say, hello, Cornelius. And he goes, who? And I said, Cornelius. And he goes, who? And I said, Cornelius Wood. And he goes, who is this? And I said, it's Bruce Foreman. And he goes, Bruce. This is Clint Eastwood. Now <laughs> uh. <laughs> I said, oh, Clint, how are you? And as soon as she heard me say that, she kind of like went white. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> he's not used to being like treated like a normal person. You know, like yeah, he says, like he wants yeah. to talk, people answer. And like, right. so I'm sure she really impressed him. You know <laughs> and, uh, and he said, yeah, I got this project. I just don't have anything I like. You know, will you come in? And uh, I said, you know, I kind of said, sure. And I'm headed into town. And because uh, because I live out in, you know, in, in Carmel Valley, which is sort of rustic from Carmel. It's about 10, 15 miles in the woods. And uh, and so I'm halfway there and I go, oh, shit, man. You know, this is like kind of a movie thing, I think. You know, all I've got is my Ibanez, you know. What if it's about a bullfighter or, you know, or, or if it's a Western or something, you know? So I called a friend of mine who has a really good guitar collection. And I said, I'm coming in and I've got a studio thing and I don't know what I'm going to need. Can I borrow some guitars? She said, yeah. She told me where the key was hidden. I went to her house because she wasn't there. I went in and she wow. said, I, for a classical, I'd take this one. For a dreadnought, I'd take this one. For a little triple O, you know, or double O Martin, I'd take this one. Yeah. So I, so I had these guitars with me and then I got the studio and, and Clint is going like, well, it's kind of a, kind of a tragedy. It's about a female boxer. And, but I really want like a Missouri back porch searching sound. That's okay. all he said. So of course that meant like a dreadnought steel string. Yeah. And, and, then that, and then he played a theme on the piano kind of like, you know, and I transcribed it. Then I went over the piano and played it for him. I said, do you hear it major or minor? You know, and I played it kind of both ways. And he offered to let me actually do it on piano too, but I I chose not to. And he wanted it the major way, you know, mostly. And so I just sat down and like improvised for about an hour on this theme. And he took it and cut it up and it became like, yeah, well more than half the music of that movie. But I mean, you know, and then, Again, that's back to jazz. You know, that's what we do, man. People hand you something and you make something. I mean, you, you told me something 20 years ago that really stuck in my imagination. And it was you were talking about your improvising and you said, I like to live on the extremes. And I think what you meant by that was you're down to play slow. You're down to play a real slow swing and tempo where this, the beat is wide and there's a lot going through. And you're also down to play on the edge, playing super fast, tempos above, you know, yeah. 350 or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about, I know we want to be respectful of your time, but can you just share a little bit about kind of developing a whole picture as an improviser and being able to live on either extreme and in the middle and all that? Because that's such a life's work as an improviser. Yeah, well, um, playing fast. I've always loved playing fast. I've always loved listening to fast music, you know, Bird playing fast, Sonny Rollins, those Sonny Rollins records, Be Quick and all that stuff. I mean, that was like, 
God, you know, I mean, to me, and, you know, of course, at the Keystone Corner, that was, those guys were, that was when tempos were a big thing, you know, yeah. due to what we'd play. So um, I did it a lot. I did it a lot. There's a lot of crashing and burning going on, you know what I mean, in the, yeah. in the learning phases of that. But by doing it at a young, I mean, I played with John Clayton one day, and, and we're playing, we're playing Cherokee duo, you know, and it's really fast. And he's kind of, you know, he's bearing down, you know, and I'm just smiling and laughing and having a great time, you know, and he's playing quarter notes and I'm playing eighth notes. And and he looked at me and he kind of stopped and he says, you played fast a lot when you were really young, didn't you? I mean, that was, that was, he just looked at me and I said, yeah. You know, I mean, Vince Ladiano in particular, that drummer, we would get together and all afternoon just play tempos. Crash and burn, crash and burn, play tempos, play tempos, you know. And I, this is a long answer, but I learned something really big. And, you know, I didn't realize I was doing it till somebody pointed out. The way I got the Monterey Jazz Festival All-Star gig was there was this summit one year. Mundello was the uh, music director of the festival. So it was Mundello, John Collins, Eddie Duran, Ron Eshtay, and me. This was this, you know, Ronnie and I were the young guys, you know, and, um, and it was a thing where we, you know, we all played together a couple of tunes, you know, trading solos and all that stuff. And then we all got a feature. It was on the main stage and the the rhythm section <clears throat> house rhythm section then was Hank Jones, Andy Simpkins and Shelly Mann. I decided, you know, cause they were all kind of playing some pretty conservative choices of songs and tempos. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do Oleo like stupid fast. And in the rehearsal, so I, you know, I started playing. We're all playing and Shelly's playing, you know, Hank and Andy. And we're going along and we're having a ball, you know, I'm just having a ball. And, and about the middle of my second chorus, you know, and by now we know we're cool. It's just like we were just playing, you know what I mean? And Shelly stops and I figure, oh, okay, the, you know, that's the end for the rehearsal. I wanted to keep going because it just felt so good. Shelly said looked over at andy simpkins the bass player and he said andy don't work so hard because andy was doing the thing like this and and shelly said i swear to god he says he listen to bruce he's he's feeling this in two he's not feeling this in four he's playing in four but he's feeling it in two and that's what i'm doing you know playing four but feeling two breathe And like, and then he made me play unaccompanied for a chorus. So check it out, Bruce. Just play a chorus. One, two, one, two, three, four. And then I'm like playing. He says, "You hear that? There's that half note in there. It's going to swing anyway." I mean, Shelley's giving this whole like recitation on how to play fast, <laughs> and he's telling me how I'm thinking about it, and I didn't even know that's how. And and that would be my, you know, that would be my. If you're going to play, work on playing fast. If it's a tempo that's out of your comfort zone, put the metronome in two, put it on one and three, make it easy for yourself. Cause as you know, if you start going one, two, three, four, one, you know, it's just like your whole body starts to get tense. If it's a tempo that's uncomfortable. Whereas if it's super fast, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, you can all of a sudden hear all these subdivisions. And it's like, you're not, you're not no tension in your body, you're breathing. And it's going to swing at that speed because it's just moving so fast anyway. The whole idea of the metronome is to make is to learn and to make it easier for yourself, not to, 
you know, win some, oh, I put it on the third triplet. Fuck that, man. How about just playing some good fucking music? You know what I mean? This idea of uh, being able to try things and crashing and burning, this reminds me a lot of uh, some of the stuff that we've done early in New West. I mean, John, you and I, we used to go for tempos like crazy on tunes like Rivercrest and Crooked Railroad, and we would just be like, okay, you got the accompaniment, I got the lead, vice versa, let's just see what we can do with this. Right. You, ha you have to be able to find those moments where you can yeah. can learn and go through this music, and it's cool, really cool to hear you talk about that, Bruce. I, mean, I equate it to high-altitude uh, training. Yeah. You know, if you're a runner and you got to run a marathon in uh, in Lake Tahoe or something, you know, that's 7,000 feet. You're going to have to go up there and you're going to have to run and you're going to like run out of air and you're going to puke and you're going to do all those things. You're going to cramp up and you're going to need to hydrate and you're going to keep doing it. And you're going to keep doing it. Eventually, you can move at that high altitude. Mm -hmm. Music isn't really any. I mean, I think that's an analogy that really is spot on. You know, it's just fast playing. It's slow playing too. It's figuring out those tempos that are in the cracks. That you're really trying to hold on to that are that are down right. there. You know, so it's and those are the ones. Yeah, I mean, in a middle in a middle crack tempo, of course, you want the metronome on two and four. It's easier. It feels better. That's the reason to put it there. The whole idea is to learn and get better, yep. not yeah. to be able to do hard shit. So much of this music has become like some sort of Olympic thing. Doing hard shit makes you the best guy. Right, right. No, right. it's playing the best music that makes you the best guy. Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's and, and and therefore it should be easy for you to do because the real important things in music, the nuance, which is back to fast playing. One of the things why I think it's so important for people to study it is it's not that it helps your fast playing; it helps your slower playing because exactly. now you're hearing this like tempo. And there's all this space between the beats. And you start hearing these really cool shadings and ornaments that you can, like, put in places that are, like, sparkle, you know, that you would never hear if you didn't have the facility to do it. It just wouldn't occur to you. But if you've got this facility and all of a sudden you hear, you know, it's like, you would, you now you're hearing that because... You can do it because you worked in a fast tempo. And the same thing why slow tempo playing actually helps your fast playing because all of a sudden now you're paying attention to where those notes in the middle are landing because you can hear that space. When you're going fast, you don't even give a shit. You just want to get them in. But if you work at slow tempo and then you get comfortable and fast, you start hearing, wow, I'm bullshitting here. I'm not putting those notes in the middle in the place I want, you know, and, and it makes you aware of it. And then you correct it and you're better. This is all total artistry and musicianship and expression. I guess I just add to that for the younger generation, people that are younger than us that are really coming up through Instagram and social media and YouTube. <clears throat> Maybe that needs to be part of their process now at an early age. I don't, I don't really know. I think it's kind of hard to define the rules for everybody, as you're saying. But Yeah, no, and, um, and I'm just giving my opinion, you know, and, the way, and what I would just ask people to do. You know, here's the other problem is um, every day you're making a record, whether you like it or not. I, when, I you're know, playing, when you're playing out on a gig, when you're doing a jam session, if you're even just noodling like on behind the stage before the gig, somebody's got an iPhone and they're recording you and they're going to put you on, you know, so now it's like shit, you know, really 
you just can't, we don't, you know, if you're going to practice or shed, you need to find a place that's totally isolated that you know no one can get to. <laughs> because that's, you know, I mean, you, in the old days, you used to have control over, like, what people would hear. Now you don't. Now, yeah. So, like, I mean, I, I like to say, if you don't want people to hear it, don't play it. <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. Big Brother is watching. <laughs> oh my God, Bruce, dude, this is this is this is killing. This is gold. This is good. I feel like I feel like we should make some fortune cookies from today, and I should put little of these little tidbits in the fortune cookies and give them I out think to that, guitar. I think you're on something. Grumps fortune cookies, man. <laughs> right? Yeah. Let me know how I can help out. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.